That's getting cut. <laughs> <laughs> hey, kids, have your parents explain that joke to you. Hi, buddy. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. Hi, Steve. Welcome back. Hey. So yes. we are re continuing to record the books of June 1965. We had pretty good books for the first half. We've got some really nice books here in the second half and some not so nice books. <laughs> but we have one of my another. I won't spoil it. But one of these seven stories we're about to do is um, a, a real. Well, two of them are real gems, I would say. And uh, we will reveal which ones they are when we get to them. Well, I mean, uh, Matt, I mean, I think it's obvious that the Human Torch and Thing story is 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 just one of the it's a masterpiece for the ages. Yeah. No, that's not actually the case. <laughs> um, as a matter of fact, uh, I, I am thinking that you could probably dispense with this one in <laughs> two or three minutes. But uh, let's go ahead and let you go. I guess that begins as that brings us to the first book we are covering for the second half of this month, which is Strange Tales number 133, featuring Doctor Strange and the Human Torch and the Ever-Loving Thing. It's hard to tell who's doing this cover because the left looks like Ditko and the right doesn't. Doctor Strange looks like Kirby to me. Clea, or not Clea, but, you know, the other the other woman looks kind of Ditko-ish. And yeah, so it looks, it looks to me like Doctor Strange was redrawn by Kirby. Yeah, that's entirely possible. But then it doesn't... I would say the thing on the right doesn't look like either of them. Anyway, no, we see Doctor no, that Strange. Looks like Bob Powell. We see two women fighting over Doctor Strange, and we see Human Torch and Thing dealing with, I guess, it's something that really doesn't happen in the issue. They look like they're sort of fighting mannequins, which really doesn't happen. I think the best thing about this Human Torch and Thing story is the way that this mechanical Ice Queen looks. I think that we see Human Torch, and then we see again on the splash page. Well, it's an interesting issue because we begin very much in Medea's res. We begin with the middle of the story where the puppet master, who has had a lot of plastic surgery to not look like the puppet master anymore, he certainly hasn't made himself look any better. I've looked like a little evil, ugly guy for a long time, and now I want to look like an entirely different little evil, ugly guy. And uh, <laughs> He looks like Uncle Fester. We see him. He has created one giant robot to grapple with the thing and another really cool looking ice queen robot to shoot ice bias at Johnny. This is written by Stan Lee, art by Bob Powell and Mickey DeMeo, who aren't the worst combo, but they aren't the best. And we see that they are fighting Uncle Fester here in the basement of a department store. We then go upstairs where their girlfriends. This is one of the truly bizarre things about this issue. It says, and a few floors above in the art department of a large department store, we find, and we see them there. So they have in this department store, which is presumably like, you know, Macy's or Sears or something, they have a huge art gallery with giant stone sculptures and mobiles and paintings. And it's like, would you buy fine art in a department store? I That seems... <laughs> uh, if you're a hotel. I guess. It seems very strange. <laughs> and then we flash back to when the whole thing began, when the girls came here shopping with their boyfriends and then a creepy guy comes up and it's alicia fails to perceive that this is the puppet master because he said plastic surgery um, this is yeah, right <laughs> <laughs> and, and of course so that way he doesn't look the same yes. to alicia who cannot see <laughs> you wouldn't think that the man who raised her would be able to disguise himself with plastic surgery given that she can't even see but uh, she does not realize this is the man who raised her. He then w tries to lure them all down in the basement so that he can attack them. He manages to eventually just lure the boys away, but not the girls. They're like, okay, we'll go down to the basement, deal with this Uncle Fester-looking dude, and then uh, leave the girls upstairs and we'll be fine. But of course, when they get there, they very quickly figure out this is really the Puppet Master. And then they get attacked by these robots that were especially designed to attack them. One successfully grapples with the thing, the uh, ice queen successfully shoots ice bias at Johnny. We then get, this is really bizarre. I guess this is more of an inking mistake than a penciling mistake. But on the top of page three, we've got a panel that begins with little scalloped edges. 
to show that this is oh. the beginning of a flashback. This is sort of a classic comic. What's the word I'm looking for? Classic comic iconography. Visual tool or whatever. Yeah. Visual tool shows the beginning of a flashback. But then they start to get very confused about when the flashback ends. Because yeah. that flashback has already ended a long time ago. And then suddenly, just utterly bizarrely, on page nine, we get the scalloped edges showing that the flashback is ending. But the flashback ended several pages ago, and this is just in the middle of a two-panel sequence. The, the first panel acts like it's the end of a flashback, which it is not. And it's just Comics 101 failure. Yes, yes, very much so. And uh, that would not be the inker. That would be either the penciler or the letterer. Because the letterer also, uh, at this point in time, inked in all the panel borders before ah, it went to the inker. I did not know yeah, that. So the penciler penciled it. It went to the letterer. The letterer did all the lettering and the panel borders. And then it went to the inker. Well, whoever did it, it is shockingly incompetent to have that scalp border there. <laughs> because it is anybody who actually read the issue would know that makes absolutely no sense to have that border there. So then we actually have... Johnny doing something clever to defeat the bad guys, which is a lot of fun. I always like it when people do something clever. He realizes that if he hides behind Ben's robot, that then his ice queen will shoot at Ben's robot and disable it. And then Ben can break free and save them both, which is really nice. They seemingly sort of accidentally almost kill Puppet Master, decide to just leave him there almost dead and not tell Alicia that that was her uh, that person who she did not recognize because he had plastic surgery was her stepfather. And then they all now, go home. In, in fairness, he said that he spoke in an unnaturally low tone. Yeah. So, I mean, you know. <laughs> oh, well. Yeah. But uh, anyway, it's a typically terrible human torch and thing story. Only a minuscule amount redeemed by, I think, a really cool look on the ice queen. Uh, yeah, I think this is actually even below the normal standards for the uh, Johnny Torch thing stories here. Just, this is just, I mean, Bob Powell, I can sometimes like his stuff, but this issue, it's just no, uh, especially the way he draws the puppet master and that weird, like, I don't know what turtleneck sort of thing he's wearing or like some kind of big and it looks like he's maybe wearing like one of those airplane neck pillows around his neck or something. Yes. And it just, and his eyes just, you know, are big black sockets with eyes in them. It's just, uh, you know, there are several things in here where I would just, you know, if somebody showed one of these to me at a, at a comic convention to get a critique, I'd just be like, okay, you've got a lot of work <laughs> to, to learn to do what you need to do. Uh, I, I just am not a fan of this story at all. And then presumably at some point, Puppet Master gets plastic surgery to just revert back to how he looked before. And presumably his plastic surgeon was like, really? You want to look like that again? You want to go back to that? And he's like, yes, yes. Have me look exactly like I looked before. Because... Like, he's like, well, it's really kind of a wash. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. So let's move on to a much better back half of the issue. One of the best Marvel stories this month. Uh, one of the best Marvel stories of all time. The, the all-time great Baron Mordo Dormammu epic continues. We are on chapter four. A nameless land, a timeless time. Lee is still giving himself writing credit. Dicko has not taken over the planning credit on this book yet. Strange is the script by Stan Lee. Awesome is this art by Steve Dicko. Lilting is this lettering by S. Rosen. We begin with Doctor Strange, who, as you recall, was almost killed by Baron Mordo and Dormammu last issue and escaped through the dimensions and is still zipping through dimensions. Beautiful first page of him passing through dimensions. We get Baron Mordo and Dormu trying to figure out how to track him down. We get Clea continuing to worry about him. I think that Clea looks fantastic. I love Clea's utterly bizarre hairdo. They did not try to <laughs> they did not try to recreate this on Charlie's Theron when she showed up briefly in Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. It is a shame. I would have loved to see Charlie's Theron wearing this crazy hairdo. But they did not yes. do it. One thing I have to say on this whole issue is just this may give us more crazy Ditko interdimensional trippy weird backdrops than any issue we've gotten so far. This is just nuts how much he puts in here. And it is I'm here for it. It is fantastic. And indeed, on page three, we see him shooting through different dimensions as like a black ball and they all look like gorgeous Dicko other dimensionality and then he finally arrives in a 
in a place where there is a woman who's like, no, 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 you got to get out of here. We're ruled by an evil woman dictator who is going to find you and discover you. But she does find them. It is Shazana. She takes them both prisoner. And we never find out, I don't think, the name of the Bond woman who is warning Dr. Strange about Shazana. But uh, who, who has some hair that is somewhat reminiscent of Clea's, but <laughs> yes. but it's like she's got a ponytail. She's got a, he- a cowl and there's a ponytail sticking out the back. And then there's a little top pony sticking out of the top and then two other little ponytails sticking out like horns in the front. Yes. <laughs> oh, I, it's uh, I, I, I like it. Yes. I guess I didn't realize they're half-sisters. So uh, her half-sister, Shazana's half-sister is there. And uh, she's like, no, I'm going to send her away. I'm going to um, attack Dr. Strange. She does not realize Dr. Strange is only temporarily weak from his travels. So she just sort of leaves him kneeling in a useless lump on her floor and leaves uh, to go deal with other stuff. Some of her subjects have arrived with treasures for tribute for her. So she goes to deal with it. Dr. Strange is first like, I'll just send out my compressive form. Nope, I'm not doing that. I'm too weak. That did not go well. And so it's like, crap, what am I going to do? But then a very clever sequence, he is approached by the very creepy looking pet of Shazana, or not creepy looking, but just unusual looking uh, pet yeah. of Shazana. And he pulls up his eye of Agamotto and hypnotizes it into revealing the secrets of Shazana finds out that she has that she just bought a big orb to give her magic powers and keeps it under her throne. That tells him all he needs to know. He goes ahead and says the eye to Shazana's half-sister and tells her, here's what I want you to do. Uh, they arrange a whole thing. And then when they all show up with Shazana and Doctor Strange, Doctor Strange manages to make the throne disappear, reveal the orb. He dives for it. Shazana dives for it. They dive at the same time, and then suddenly it explodes, and she has lost all her powers, but Doctor Strange is sent rocketing off into more dimensions. And then the half-sister is happy that they will once again be able to live in peace and that Shazana is ruined. I think this is an absolutely fantastic story. I think it is absolutely brilliantly plotted, maybe by Lee, maybe by Dicko, where we have the this overriding epic, but the epic as Doctor Strange is literally rocketing from place to place in the middle of his massive duel with Baron Mordo and Dormammu gets into this little self-contained story, which I think is just a beautifully potted, certainly beautifully penciled, but also beautifully potted issue. And with a nice little self-contained 10-page story in the middle of this epic. Yeah, absolutely. And yet this story is just visually just luscious stunning you know? uh uh near near perfection it really is fantastic i mean you know i i have some problems with uh shazana i don't really like some of the ways that she is portrayed with you know her her eyelashes it looks like the way that you know she's evil is that her eyelashes don't clump like the eyelashes uh, like the uh, mascara and most of uh of his other folks but for the most part uh like i said the the art in here is just mind-blowing also there are little things like on page eight second to last panel where um the good half-sister like i like you said i don't think we get her name is sitting on her bed and something about the position of her there just looks so naturalistic in a way that actually is more more so than I usually expect to get from Ditko. You know, usually he's got some stylized kinds of positions for people. But right there, I'm just like, that really looks like real life. <laughs> That's- uh, in the middle of all of this crazy, crazy stuff, which, you know, is just fantastic. Yeah, But yeah, I, I also really like how when he's passing through the various dimensions, in some of them, it looks like he sort of makes a big sp- like you're going into like you know you're dropping a stone into some water and you get a splash coming up and we see that both in the first interdimensional travels and then also in the internet and when he departs at the end to go to other dimensions you see some of these things and it's just once again the the I mean, Ditko's trippy imagination with this stuff is just, I mean, and not only is it amazing just in and of itself, but in such a straight-laced conservative dude. Yes. Oh, it's absolutely crazy that this guy was not tripping balls all the time on wacko juice. uh, Because, you know, I think you would have a lot of, I think Jim Starlin was perhaps influenced by substances when he was doing similar work in the 70s. And uh, but Dicko was not. He was he was just yeah. high on life. 
Yeah, I think that in what was it Marvel, the untold story or something like that, there was a sequence that was described by the author. And of course, I cannot verify any of this. But the, what the author says is there is a particular night when like Starlin and Engelhart and and maybe was it Gerber or something like that? We're all just out on LSD walking around in Manhattan together at one point. And there's a whole little story. Uh, I don't know if it was Gerber, but I know that it was a uh, Starlin and Engelhart yep. story that was told. So uh, yes, I am pretty sure that that whole generation of weird seventies Marvel writers were influenced both by this wacky stuff and by illegal chemical substances. Yes, very much so. And I gotta say, so two more things point about this issue. For one thing, Doctor Strange's cloak, by the way, is still red and brown. There is still no yellow in his cloak. I keep waiting for that to change. But really? uh, I understand okay. in your recolored versions, his cloak is red and yellow, but it is still red and brown as it has been yeah. for the entire six issues or so it has been here in the main book. But I say, I also just really appreciate Stanley's scripting on this whole issue. I think that Stanley's scripting is really nice. I love his final word balloon in this issue using the newly released power of the exploding mystic globe dr strange begins the long hazardous journey back to back to but time enough for that when we meet again until then may the omnipotent ashtor walk softly by your side i think that this scripting is adding a lot to these issues even if as steve dicko would claim lee was not plotting at all the scripting is fantastic yes Yes. Okay. Yes, that was a uh, a great one. And now we'll move on to one that sort of is more, uh, it's got its ups and downs. <laughs> so we've got Tales of Suspense number 66 featuring Iron Man and Captain America. And we see that uh, Iron Man is going to be fighting Atuma, which is an odd uh, pairing. And Captain America will be fighting the Red Skull, which is not at all an odd pairing. Well, the first thing we see is that Iron Man no longer has rivets on his head. That Iron Man now has an actual oh, line right. drawn. Should, yeah. There's an actual line showing where his face mask meets the rest of the helmet instead of just having rivets that uh, were forcing the colorist to go into conniptions trying to conjure up a line where there was none. I had not even noticed that, but yes, absolutely. So written in the Marvel tradition of greatness by Stan Lee, illustrated in the Marvel tradition of grandeur by Don Heck, inked in the Marvel tradition of drama by Mickey DeMeo, lettered in the coziest corner of the room by Sam Rosen. And I got to say, DeMeo does a good job on Heck here. DeMeo is not always equally good on Heck, but I think this is a really yeah. nice linked issue and really much better than Ayers and King on Heck in Avengers oh, this month. Ayers and Heck are just a terrible combo. They really and, are. Uh, yeah, it, it's just, they both bring out the worst in each other. It's just terrible. But yeah, uh, DeMeo does a decent, or sorry, um, what, what, what's his actual name? Esposito. Esposito, thank you. Yeah, Esposito does a, a quality job here. We start out Senator Bird, who is an ongoing villain in here. Not villain, but adversary. Let's put it that way. An ongoing adversary who uh, is always trying to interfere with Stark's government contracts because he thinks that Stark is basically not worth the government spending money on. And uh, as I think I pointed out in an earlier episode, this is not Senator Bird, the West Virginia, the actual real life West Virginia senator who. Uh, was at one point in the KKK, although he did renounce that later. But <laughs> yeah. but no, he is a different Senator Bird. Once again, Happy is trying to get Stark to do something. As you pointed out last issue, uh, Happy wasn't allowed to drive Stark somewhere and Stark was a jerk to him. And so this time he's like, hey, let me drive the test submarine. You know, I need to do something around here. It's like, no, we're not going to let you drive the test submarine. What are you talking about? Well, he storms out. And as it turns out later, he is gone he has he has left um you know he'll be back later but right. <laughs> he has gone supposedly for good then of course we have that thing where it's like no i'll let iron man do the test and then you know they're like hey where where's stark and someone's like oh stark never shows up for these things <laughs> like he's, he doesn't show up for his test he just sends iron man and no one puts two and two together so here's iron man in his armor with his iron gloves working the uh controls of this little underwater patrol craft thing that he's making for the u.s military but he just happens to stumble upon some scouts for uh, Atuma's forces. So they start shelling him basically with some stuff. And he jumps out of his vehicle and finds that they've got an enormous gun, like cannon, 
that they've got. And he says, it's pointed at the surface. It's like, well, it's pointed up. <laughs> right. But I mean, you know, that every, every like, uh, you know, heavy artillery piece is going to be pointed up. It's not, is- it's not like when, it's not like when we have one, it's like, it's pointed towards space. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, so it turns out that there is a rare metal, which is called nautilium, as in like Nautilus or whatever, but nautilium. So nautilium apparently precedes both adamantium and vibranium. So nautilium is the first sort of uh, made up metallic element that uh, that we have in the Marvel Universe. So they they have found all of the nautilium on the entire ocean bottom. And they have put it into one shell. And apparently the way nautilium works is once you get up in the air, it will turn all of the oxygen into water vapor or something like that. And then uh, the then Atuma will be able to rule on the surface world because it's going to be wet enough for him to breathe. And it's too wet for humans to breathe. So they're all going to have to wear spacesuit helmets and uh, serve as slaves. That's his plan. Iron Man ends up in combat directly with Atuma. He is then able to send his little test craft into the nozzle of the Nautilium gun right as they're shooting it, and it just self-destructs right there in place without getting up into the atmosphere where it would destroy all of our oxygen. So then Iron Man comes out of the ocean. Actually, that panel on page 12, the third from the last panel, I just noticed, look at the perspective of Iron Man. Note the pier over on the left-hand side (laughs) of the panel. Yes. That... (laughs) <laughs> just makes zero sense whatsoever. Anyway, so Senator Byrd just thinks this is more evidence that he's wasting government money because this thing isn't working. Then it turns out also that Happy has actually run off and we don't know where he is. So yes. that's where we leave it. Senator Byrd now has more, you know, he has just as much of a mad on for Stark as ever. And Happy is done with this BS and has headed out. Uh, do you have any uh, thoughts about this issue, this story before we move on to the Captain America? I really don't. I think that Tomeo looks nice on heck. I think it is perfectly fine to spend part of an issue having your hero fight Atuma. Atuma is a perfectly fine villain, as if we're going to have everybody one by one take their time fighting him. That's fine. They make for perfectly fine stories. This is a ultimately rather forgettable issue, but it's a pleasant enough way to spend 12 pages. I wonder if any, you know, postmodern writer has ever brought Nautilium back up. I don't uh, think so. <laughs> Maybe Mark Wade. Well, that's if they haven't, then that is some uh, some fertile ground for some writer to bring up here. Okay, so now we're going to move on to Captain America, the fantastic origin of the Red Skull. And I don't think this one is taken from Captain America number one, is it? Well, they say the fantastic origin of the Red Skull, all new, never before revealed. So they seem to be going like, okay. Fine. The first three months of this feature, we were just not only very lightly adapting old Joe Simon Jack Kirby stories from early days of Captain America, we were only doing Captain America Comics number one. All three of those stories were <laughs> adapted from stories within Captain America Comics number one. As far as I can tell, they have finally realized, okay, maybe that's the only issue of Captain America Comics they had. And that now that they've exhausted it, <laughs> I'm pretty sure this issue is not based on any of the later appearances of Red Skull and that they are being honest when they say all new never before revealed. And this is the actual origin of the Red Skull. And I got to say, I think this issue is an absolute masterpiece. I think this issue is absolutely gorgeous and yeah, um, and just beautifully written by Lee or by Lee and Kirby together. Yeah. Uh, so here and now, in their fu- in the full maturity of their titanic talents, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby recreate the glory and the grandeur of Captain America. So this is the second book we've seen this month where Stan Lee and Jack Kirby are not credited as writer and artist, but are rather credited on the same line, which is how they will be for the final several years of these books. And again, is this intentional? Who knows? Yes. Chick Stone is back inking here. And uh, so which I usually like to see. So uh, we have no real explanation here as to how uh, Captain America was captured by the Red Skull. But uh, they do make it clear this was part of the whole aftermath of the previous issue where the Red Skull had 
you know, shown up and was knocking out all these uh, military folks. So then somehow in Captain America pursuing the Red Skull after that, the Red Skull captures Captain America. Red Skull is basically interrogating Captain America, trying to figure out how he figured out. Yeah, that Maxon actually, not only was Maxon not Maxon, Maxon was not, so Maxon is the uh, industrialist from last issue that uh, had built the plane and then it blew up and he was acting weird. So then it turned out he was the Red Skull. Well, now it says... Tell me, how did you learn that Maxon wasn't the real Red Skull last month? He says, mostly by the way he fought. I caught him too easily. I had, and I had heard of your fighting prowess. So Red Skull then says, see, what does he say here? Before I dispose of you, I shall tell you how I first became the Red Skull, secure in the knowledge that your lips will never repeat my tale. So he started monologuing. So we see the Red Skull as a kid. Well, actually, we never see his face. So we've never seen Red Skull's face, I think, until like the Jam Demetrius Paul Neary days in the 80s, his real face. I absolutely love the visual conceit of this issue where Kirby sets himself this interesting challenge to tell this entire epic origin story of the Red Skull. But in all of the flashbacks, we never see his face. His face is always occluded or in shadow. And I think it is... Absolutely brilliant. It's kind of heartbreaking. It's really nice. Oh, yeah. You really sort of, as in Dr. Doom's origin a couple months ago in Fantastic Four Annual Number 2, you really sort of feel for this wretched urchin, wretched orphan slash urchin on the streets of Germany who we never see the face of. I think it is a brilliant visual conceit and really makes us into a very nice artistic seeming story. Yeah, and this is how you radicalize people, right? You have them in situations with no hope, no hope, no dignity, uh, poor, on the edge of destruction any given moment, and then they find a big, ugly ideology to grab onto that explains everything and gives them an identity. So that's what we're seeing here. Yeah, so he was a street urchin, he was stealing, but then it turned out that he, even when he was stealing to eat, uh, other bullies would come and be- steal his stuff that he had just stolen, and so he didn't even get to eat chicken and then was you know we see his wretched existence as he grew older interspersed with world war ii era scenes of the red skull interrogating captain america so then the red skull talks about how uh, my life changed when the nazis came to power he was a working as a hotel porter or something like a that boy there was a big nazi rally and adolf hitler was staying in the hotel and he was in the room serving tea it looks like when hitler was berating one of his generals And so he's telling the general, why have I no one to turn to, none to depend on? Must I create my own race of perfect Aryans? I could teach that bellboy to do a better job than you. And Hitler looks at him and sort of sees in his face uh, the ingredients of great evilness that uh, that he uh, admires. He says, the way you look at me, the envy, the jealousy in your eyes, the sheer blazing hatred. I know those emotions. You too hate all mankind. What an inspiration this gives me. You shall be my greatest achievement. I shall make a perfect Nazi of you. Again, don't see Red Skull's face. We just see Hitler getting more and more enraptured by this whole concept. And I think it's just brilliant. Yeah, and uh, let the anger flow through you. Yes. (laughs) Very much feels like the the emperor. And yes, Hitler gives the future Red Skull to uh, some of his military folks to train. And he sees he's just being trained as a regular stormtrooper. And Hitler's like, no, this is a special person. This is not going to be just a regular stormtrooper. So Hitler actually makes the Red Skull costume and mask for him. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you know, you're always complaining about the Red Skull's costume being so bland looking. Uh, you know, Hitler was a failed artist. You would think <laughs> that he would put more effort into the design of this thing than just, just a green, green jumpsuit suit. with a white swastika on it. Uh, although he, he really knocked himself out with that mask. You yep. know, I mean, that, that that came from an actual artist. He shows himself to be absolutely ruthless. Uh, meanwhile, in World War II time, at this point, uh, Captain America breaks uh, out of his... Uh, no, he's still chained up, but he's just still fighting while he is bound. And uh, so he's given the Red Skull a run for his money. 
even though he's all tied up. We then see more reminiscing of the Red Skull in World War II and of him just really reveling in all the destruction he's able to rain down on the world in his new role, including people who are who are loyal to Hitler. There's no, no, you cannot take my son. He has done nothing. He is loyal to the Fuhrer. The Red Skull says, bah, it is his loyalty to me that counts. Take him away. And then he says, thanks to my cleverness, many of Hitler's most trusted advisors began to mysteriously vanish. So they do this in the first Captain America movie. They've got the Red Skull first being loyal to Hitler and then revealing that, no, 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 he wants to take over from Hitler. They have him fully take over from Hitler in that movie. Seemingly, the actual Nazi menace has been defeated in that movie to be subsumed, uh, overwhelmed by the Hydra menace. Here, Hydra is a separate thing that is not Red Skull's organization. Now, of course, one of the reasons they did that in the movie- well, and, and Hydra doesn't exist yet. It's going to show up in the next yet. year. But one of the reasons they did that in the movie is because they wanted to have toys that didn't have swastikas on them. And they they first ran into this problem with the Captain America cartoon in the 90s, where they were like, okay, we're going to have Captain America toys, and then all of his villains' toys, and they've all got swastikas on them. And then the toy stores were like, no, you can't do that anymore. And Marvel was like, what? And they're like, no, you can't have toys with swastikas on them. For one thing, the Germans really aren't happy about that. But Americans aren't that happy about it these days either. you know. And they're like, oh, okay. So that was how they came up with this whole conceit in the Marvel movies of that Red Skull used the Hydra symbol instead of the swastika. And then he basically had already wiped Hitler out of the way. And he was now leading the World War II effort. So now the World War II baddies all had Hydra emblems instead of swastikas. So here we have, we don't go that far. He's still wearing a swastika. But I had not realized the degree to which this was in the comics, this idea of, no, 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 I am no longer loyal to Hitler. I want, I am leading my own, essentially, independent movement at this point. Well, I think also they wanted to be able to show the movie in Germany, which I think there are actually legal problems, like constitutional problems with being able to show things that have swastikas on them in Germany. Right. So, you know, they might not even be able to show the movie there in that case. So we got, once again, the confrontation between Red Skull and Captain America. He does flashback here to how he ended up capturing Captain America. So this is, you were saying uh, earlier right. that wasn't revealed. This is revealed here. Right. Uh, he was on the sub. Yes, I believe so. so I or think, not the sub, on that ship. So he kidnaps Captain America, presumably while he is crossing the Atlantic. So I think this may be our first Captain America comic that is actually set in Europe. Yeah, I think you're right. But I, I like this exchange here where Captain America says, you're a fool, Nazi. Gloating over a helpless prisoner is a sign of weakness, not strength. You've made your point, Skull. I've heard that even Hitler fears you. Even he can no longer control you. But then he says, but I'm not Hitler. I'm an American. And my breed just doesn't scare easily. And uh, he then, once again, attacks the uh, the Red Skull. Uh, it does look like the Red Skull probably should have made the, the chains between his hands and between his legs a little shorter. <laughs> yeah. uh, it doesn't really look like they're uh, hampering his movement <laughs> that much. No. Um, <clears throat> but then there's a chemical that he had. I forget where that was here. But he goes ahead and exposes Captain America to some chemical that then weakens him. And then when he wakes back up, he is now essentially uh, a slave, not even a slave, but like an automaton uh, to the Red Skull. So uh, he then, you know, has Captain America says, I am ready. And Red Skull says, prove it by returning my salute. Ah, that's more like it. And then we see Captain America giving the Heil Hitler salute, uh, saying, may the power of the Third Reich last a thousand years. And so then it turns out they're sending him to go kill Eisenhower. Sounds like. And then the issue ends on a cliffhanger. So, yeah, this is a good issue. I mean, a good story. Well, you know, remember that controversy a few years ago when they said, oh, yes, Cap- Captain America has always been an agent of, you know, uh, has been an agent of Hydra. And everybody's like, oh my God, how could you do that to Captain America? It's like, dude, read the comics. <laughs> like, you know, uh, go back to 1965. He has been turned into a Nazi before. <laughs> Just cool your jets. It's not going to last forever. Yes. But I think this issue is absolutely brilliant. I think it is a masterpiece. I think that this is just a great origin, just this wonderfully irony-soaked origin of, you know, this lowly bellboy. It's like, I could even turn this bellboy into a perfect Nazi. And But it's not just like he's just chosen random. He's, you know, got Hitler sees the hate in his face and says, like, you know, that that is the hate I've been looking to tap into because of his wretched upbringing I think that Stanley and Jack Kirby are just really great at villain origins. 
And this is up there in the same league as their origin of Dr. Doom. I think this is absolutely brilliant. And it, I like how we end on a cliffhanger and Captain America has been brainwashed and we're feel like they've finally shaken off the lazy impulse to just adapt all of the original Captain America comic stories. And they are doing new World War II stories, which are great. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've been thinking uh, recently in general about the difference between sympathy and empathy. I sort of seem to see them differently than how some people do in that the way I would describe this this story is that they tell the Red Skull's story with empathy, but not with sympathy. Yes. Right. Yes. So it's like you can feel what he feels and sort of understand why he feels the way he feels, but in a way that we have no sympathy for him because he is, you know, still evil. And that's something I I think that sometimes people think of empathy and sympathy in a reverse sort of way that, you know, empathy is a further thing beyond sympathy that if you're empathetic, then of course you're already going to be sympathetic. Like that was a, a precursor to that, but I really don't see it that way. I, yeah. I I really see this as empathy without sympathy, which I really like. That's exactly how I use the terms in my book and the way you're using them there. And yeah, I totally agree. We feel intense empathy and no sympathy for the Red Skull yeah. in this story. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I know I ran way over on that one. I apologize for that. But uh, uh, well, I can now hand it over to you. It was a great half of a great comic that was worth discussing in depth. However, well, we, we we had the we did have the momentous introduction of Nautilium in the previous story. That is true. We can't forget that. Uh, actually, <laughs> we can forget that. We will, in fact, entirely forget, forget it very quickly. Forget what? I forget. Forget. I forget. So that brings us to Tales to Astonish number sixty-eight: Giant Man and the Incredible Hulk. We see Giant Man uh, asleep with someone holding a rock over his head, peril from the past, and we see Bruce Banner with his entire supporting cast in vignettes around him, back from the dead. Uh, seemingly caught an inked cover, which is a shame. Kirby caught a cover. It looks like we jump into the issue. Claude would only ever ink covers when he inked the inside, and sure enough, whop, whop, here's Claude on the inside. So we begin with the giant man story, superfying script by Stan Lee, stereophonic art by Bob Powell, stultifying inking, pretty accurate, by Vince Coletta, <laughs> schizophrenic lettering by S. Rosen. So thankfully, Claude just thinks the first half of the book, not the back half. So then we begin with, I, you know, we've read a lot of bad Marvel comics, and we've heard a lot of dumb villain plans. I think this may be the dumbest villain plan we have <laughs> run into in the entirety of Marvel comics. The human top, who I should point out has badass kick-ass superpowers that he can use to attack people, has decided, no, I'm not going to use my superpowers to attack Giant Man. Giant Man is hanging around being giant. I'm going to buy or rent a plane, fly the plane right at Giant Man, crash into him, but don't worry, I am going to dive out of the plane without a parachute and hope I land in trees. <laughs> so it's like whenever whenever you have anything like the beginning of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom or whenever you have anything that involves like, I've got a plan to kill the hero that involves me blowing up my own plane. I'm like, all right, planes are expensive. I think you are underestimating how expensive planes are. Like, generally speaking, any plan that involves you destroying your own plan in order to kill a hero is not a good plan. Well, uh, at least unlike Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, uh, they didn't show that he actually refueled. They actually show that they refueled after catching Indiana Jones, but before dropping him off. Yes. Why you bother to refuel before that, I don't know. <laughs> but, I have always wondered that. He crashes his plane into Giant Man. He jumps out and tries to just land in trees. But then Giant Man saves him, but saves saves the bad guy who just tried to crash a plane into him, but trips and smashes his head into a tree and falls unconscious. This turns out to be the human top. The human top is like, I could just pick up a rock and smash his head in and go like, nah, it wouldn't do any good. He's too big. And it would only serve to sting him and revive him. So then the human top's like, I don't know what to do now. I guess I'll just leave. So then he just <laughs> turns into a tornado and just flies away. The whole thing is so poorly written. You know, like, I used to give Stan Lee the first two times I read through all these stories, I was giving Stan Lee a lot more credit than I give him on this read through it. And I'm reading this through now and I'm like going, how could I have ever read this comic and said that this comic had the same plotter as Spider-Man and Doctor Strange? <laughs> and like, this is just like, you would never get a plot this dumb in any of the Kirby or Dicko books. 
of just I'm going to crash a plane into the giant man and jump out of without a parachute, never get anything that dumb. So then we then see giant man goes back to his lab with the wasp. He is all concerned about how tall he should grow and what's the ideal height. And it goes on and on and on. And they go back and forth. Meanwhile, the human top is also working on improving his abilities. He is like, you know, I should really be able to fly. That'd be awesome. Maybe I should invent myself a new outfit that enables me to fly around while I'm spinning around like a top. So he does. Well, and, and as he's getting rid of his old costume, he actually does refer to it as uh, lo- making him look like a turnip. He says, I'm just like a human turnip in this blasted costume. And I believe I have referred to him as turnip head in the past, if I'm not mistaken. He heard your criticism and internalized it as <laughs> our mother is a member of. Adult, so I, I cited this on the podcast I recorded last night. I'll cite it again tonight. We'll see if it gets cut from either one. Our mother is a member of adult children of alcoholics. And they say that, you know, your parents say all these toxic things to you and then you repeat them to yourself. And they say, don't let your parents live rent free in your head. Human top, don't let Steve live rent free in your head. He called you a turnip (laughs) head. Don't internalize his criticisms. So then we then get to the wasp talking to Hank. She's like, you know how you had me ride around on a bee last issue and it stung me? Why don't I ride around on a wasp? Doesn't that make more sense? So she's got her little wasp she wants to ride around on. We then see Giant Man helping install a big two-story window in his office. But then here comes the human top who shows up. Now, the previous time the human top showed up, they said the human top does not need a disguise because he is so generic looking that Giant Man doesn't recognize him when he's sitting right next to him. However, this time, human top has decided, nope, I'm not so generic looking. I need a disguise. Puts on a silly little beret and French beard and goatee and uh, shows up in Giant Man's office. And then suddenly whips them all off, puts on his flying outfit, and starts flying around attacking Giant Man. And Giant Man goes out the window, is then (laughs) human top, then kidnaps Jan and flies off there. I'm not sure he's ever done that before. That would be extremely unpleasant to be taken captive by the... (laughs) Yes, to be carried off by the human top. (laughs) To be carried off by someone who's whipping around in a... rapid circles like it would be unpleasant enough to be the human top but to be held by the human top as he's whipping around that would really suck so he flies up with the wasps giant man still can't decide what height to be and is trying to chase after him and the whole issue ends on a cliffhanger this is a truly terrible issue the powell coetta combo is not good even worse than the powell demeo combo we saw before the dumbest villain plan we've ever seen in any Marvel comic. The human top, never a good villain. Now that he can fly, he has not improved one whit. A terrible issue. And uh, I will also point out that they kind of, sort of, acknowledge the whole idea that this secret identity thing is getting more and more silly when there's when they're just like, oh yeah, um, for my friend Giant Man, I want to go ahead and refit this entire lab to fit a thirty-five foot per you know man through it. You know. Not for me, for my buddy, Giant Man. And it's just like, what? Uh, yeah, not good. Indeed, it is It is quite silly. One thing that was amusing was Wasp, naming her pet Wasp. I forget the name she gives him, but she's like doing, you know, talking baby talk to it the entire time. Oopsie whoopsie kind of thing. <laughs> and really just driving Hank nuts <laughs> with the whole thing. That that was, that was an interesting, uh, a fun little little thing. Uh, yeah, Boopsie. She names her wasp Boopsie. Oh, and the and the wasp does finally get the cybernetic stuff in her helmet in order to be able to. I guess I don't know whether she can uh, grow and shrink herself, but uh, it allows her to talk to wasps the same way that Giant Man talks to ants. Yes, which is good. But yeah, I think she's been able to grow and shrink herself for a while. I think that's been pretty clear. She's saying at one point, did that naughty old giant man hurt whose little bitty feelings, waspy? Shame old mean old gianty. And then giant man says, for Pete's sake, baby talk to a wasp. That's Endsville. <laughs> Which is like, Hank? Is that? Wait. Is this, wait, is this, is this Johnny Storm in Hank's costume? Like, what is this? It's like Bob Denver in Dobie Gillis or something, like a Mater G. Krebs or something like that. <laughs> right, yes, exactly. Anyway, we'll see where the story picks up next issue, but I do not have high hopes for it. Yeah, no, it's terrible. <laughs> yes. Okay, and we're, we're getting near the end. We're getting near the end yes. of Giant Man and the Wasp stories. 
Okay, let's go ahead and go on to the Incredible Hulk. So we last saw the Hulk and Glenn Talbot falling off a cliff under the pen of, or I should say, under the pencil of Steve Dicko. And now they are still falling off the cliff, and suddenly we have a different penciler and presumably co-potter or solo potter of the book. Jack Kirby is back. It says, story and art by Marvel's Modern Masters. Stanley and Jack Kirby, once again, they are co-credited on the same line without saying who is writing and who is drawing, inking Mickey DeMeo, lettering Artie Simak. So Stanley, clearly as editor, believes that this book deserves his best. The first five issues of Hulk were drawn by Jack Kirby, and then the last issue of his original run was drawn by Steve Ditko. When they brought him back, they brought Ditko back with him. Ditko has done the entire run up until this point, and now he is gone, and they instantly bring in Kirby to replace him with the excellent Tameo aching him. This is a character that Stan just loves and is giving him his best. There is no Bob Powell here. So we see, it was originally Bruce Banner who was falling off the cliff. He has turned into the Hulk and manages to catch Glenn Talbot in a way that is not entirely convincing. Speaking of unconvincing, he then decides to go home to America and leaps across the Pacific, and they explain that even the broad Pacific itself poses no problem as he leaps from aisle to aisle, from passing plane to passing plane, never <laughs> stopping, never tiring. So he's jumping off of like pl- of jet planes <laughs> in mid-flight. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that doesn't have, I'm sure that does, that's not upsetting to the people in the plane whatsoever. <laughs> yes. So then we get this bizarre thing where there was a great storyline that was going where Glenn Talbot and Bruce Banner were testing the Absorbitron together and the leader was trying to steal the Absorbitron and also kidnap the Hulk, which were the two things he wanted to do. And then suddenly that storyline was just abruptly abandoned for a captive in the Soviet Union storyline. And then suddenly we're back. Suddenly they're like, okay, you know, all of a sudden we're going to go back to having Bruce Banner and Glenn Talbot testing the Absorbitron. We're going to go back to having the leader and his humanoids trying to steal it. And we're just jumping back into this storyline that we abruptly abandoned four issues ago. I don't know what this has to do in terms of switching the penciler on the book. Was this originally a Stanley story that Steve Dicko got tired of and suddenly shanghaied the book off to the Soviet Union? And that now that Steve Dicko is gone, maybe this is why Steve Dicko is gone, Stanley can now reassert himself and say, no, Jack, I want you to go back to that story I wanted to do about the leader and the Absorbitron and Glenn Talbot and Bruce Banner and the humanoids. Or... Is that what's going on? There's so many different ways this could be interpreted. Well, I, I did point out when uh, when the first issue came out where the uh, leader plot had been abandoned, that Stan Lee had a caption saying like, yeah, well, who knows what's going to happen next issue? I have no idea. And I, I read that as possibly being him saying like, I don't know, we had the story with the leader and now this is happening? Like, what the heck? <laughs> you know? So that that would be an argument for that side. But I know that you said you felt it felt very much like Stan Lee had moved Steve Ditko away from the story. But who knows? Yeah, it's hard to tell who was jerking who in which direction here. But now that they're returning to it with Ditko gone, it implies that uh, maybe this is what Lee wanted. Or maybe it's what Kirby wants. Who knows? So then we have the Hulk successfully leaps his way all the way across the Pacific, goes back into his house, turns into Banner. It's hard to tell if time has passed here. It looks like everybody just watched him change, but apparently they didn't. Apparently the more time has passed between panels and it looks like he's still sitting there in the purple pants though, and they should be able to put it together. And suddenly his house is filled with MPs and Thunderbolt Ross and Betty Ross, and they are all confronting him. But then Glenn Talbot goes and personally visits LBJ to say, hey, good news, we caught the traitor. And of course, LBJ is Bruce Banner's secret keeper. And we once again have Stanley's favorite LBJ quote. He says, let's not jump to conclusions, Major. Let us reason together. He's quoted let us reason together before. So then LBJ thinks to himself, only the boy named Rick Jones and I know the secret of the Hulk. I must not betray that secret, but I can allow no harm to come to Banner. So he says, not only... Am I not going to rest for his banner? And you're not going to rest for his banner. You're going to go back to testing the Absorbitron with him on that same island you were on before. Talbot is pissed about this, but it's going to do it. They then have Rick Jones hanging out with Bruce Banner going like, oh, you know, they're they're saying all these horrible things about you in the paper. And they actually have Bruce Banner say to Rick, Rick, did you leave the Avengers and travel all this distance just to tell me you're beginning to doubt my loyalty too? So they're acknowledging the fact that it's truly bizarre that Rick Jones keeps going back and forth between the Hulk and the Avengers. 
So then, well, and 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 I I want to let's keep an eye out for exactly what the chronology is here for what's going on because when we get to the Avengers, they are also going to be talking about Rick and the timing, and they're actually going to acknowledge this stuff in in of the Avengers, but it really seems like they got everything screwed up time-wise. So I just let's pay attention to that when we get to the Avengers and see if that makes any sense, because I don't think it does. So then Bruce and Gwen land on the island. They find a bunch of pink powder sitting around. They're like, oh, I'm sure that's not a problem. It's not like we were attacked by a bunch of pink humanoids last time we were on this island. And indeed, they are attacked again by pink humanoids. We are right back in the thick of where we were four issues ago. And that issue, however, ended rather anticlimactically. This issue does not the hulk attacks the humanoids they are attacking him they suddenly shoot gas at him they knock him out and then the leader it's a little unclear in the art here but the leader seemingly kidnaps the hulk and hauls him off in a big flying ship off into seemingly outer space or at least into the stratosphere and that is the end of the issue which then interestingly enough will then pick up in the next issue of avengers which we are about to read where we'll show that issue is set picks up from the events of this issue and then shows us a glimpse of what's going to happen in the next issue of Hulk. Anyway, this is, I am very glad, I have no idea who was tricking who in what direction, but I'm very glad we pick up where we left off and go back to the Absorbitron leader, humanoid, Glenn Talbot, Bruce Banner story. I think it is absolutely ridiculous that they had to have him leap across the Pacific to get home. But I think that other than that extremely ludicrous thing, uh, or for that matter, the ludicrosity of of solving the cliffhanger from last issue first and then him leaving home. But once he is home, we're right back to where we left off. And I think it is fun. It is always silly when LBJ appears in the book as Bruce Banner's secret keeper, but it is also delightful. And I think that this is a fairly delightful story. It's great to have Kirby back on the book. And I think this is a good issue. Well, in, in the uh, country hopping stories, uh, he does end up on Easter Island at one point. Uh, was but he coming from the west or the east? He swims there. He swims to Easter Island. Which, oh, does he? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Never mind then. He does not. Uh, he does not jump there. Uh, that would be Easter Island is one of the most most remote places in the entire world. So jumping there would be an especially tricky tr- feat. No, I think he he ends up swimming there. Yes. So, what did you think of this issue? I I really liked it. I think that uh, that. Kirby is bringing a really nice energy back to the Hulk. You know, Kirby and Ditko both do great Hulks, but they both do them in very different ways. And it's nice to see Kirby's energetic style back on this thing here. And, you know, a a sort of stouter Hulk uh, rather than, you know, uh, Ditko's Hulk felt kind of heavy kind of ape-like in many ways. They're both great, but it's really nice to see this back again. Okay. So, the Avengers. This is it. The Search for the Hulk. Four against the Minotaur. And we have a nice-looking cover with the new kooky quartet facing off against the Minotaur with a uh, hovering apparition of the Hulk behind them. Story by Stan Lee. Who else? Art by Don Heck. Why not? Inked by Dick Ayers, lettered by S. Rosen. And yes, Don Heck and Dick Ayers are a train wreck together. They each seem to bring out the worst in each other. Um, But notice that we start out here, and Rick Jones is here, right? Right. And he's still stewing that he hasn't been made a full-fledged uniformed Avenger, which, you know, once again, it's just like, dude, get a grip. It's not happening. And uh, we've got some tensions between some of the characters about, you know, Cap being the leader of the group and Quicksilver and Hawkeye maybe not being all that enthusiastic about it. Although, you know, Scarlet Witch seems to be like, "Mm, he's good to me. Captain America is no weakling. I shall enjoy being an Avenger. But yeah, it's... It becomes an ongoing thing that Hawkeye wants to take over as leader of the Avengers. But at the beginning, Quicksilver wants to do it too. Quicksilver is thinking, I must be patient with my great speed. It is only a matter of time before Quicksilver replaces Captain America as leader of this group. And then Hawkeye is thinking a similar thing. So both, all three men want to be leader at this point. Uh, Scarlet Witch, however, is more than happy to be led by Captain America. 
So on page three, we then see a reference back to that Hulk story. And it says, but even as the search proceeds with grim intensity, the green-skinned Goliath is being whisked through the sky on a fantastic journey into captivity by one of the world's strangest villains, as seen in the current issue of Astonish number 69, The Lair of the Leader. So at you know, before the end of that story, we had seen Rick, you know, and they acknowledge he had left the Avengers to come over here to the Southwest to help Dr. Banner, but now he's back here in New York again, being mopey with the Avengers. Yeah. M- make it make it make sense. It does not. It makes no sense. Okay. Why can't they just, <laughs> like, Rick has no business being in the Avengers. He is a Hulk supporting character. Get him out of the Avengers. This is getting utterly ridiculous. Oh, it's been ridiculous for a while. It is beyond ridiculous at this point. Captain America then brings uh, them into a training room they have, which, uh, what do they call it? The playroom. As opposed to the danger room, right? Because right. they don't have a guy who's trying to kill them all in there. But we, we see this through the years, the uh, some kind of training facility that they have. This one looks more like a mad scientist kind of thing. But one way or the other, uh, they're going and showing off their powers and their reflexes and how they're able to, uh, to help each other. And you see that it, from their thoughts, they're starting to have a little bit of grudging respect for each other, even though they're still not quite entirely there then something really bizarre happens a giant robot breaks in and says avengers i bring message from my master and uh, anyway so they they you know captain america's fighting this thing and uh then they all jump in to help him page seven that top panel with quicksilver running and the big stripes showing his speed lines that right there is just the whole thing where Dick Ayers is just like, man, this is this sucks. I don't care about this one anymore. Let me just go ahead and put some lines down and move on. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Just, just looks terrible. So they're fighting this thing, and they finally defeat it with their teamwork. And once again, they seem to earn some grudging respect for each other over the course of this. But then it turns, as the uh, robot is dying, it says, you'll find Hulk in desert, desert. <laughs> desert um that is such a helpful thing to say how much of the earth is covered by desert exactly what percentage of the surface area of the earth is currently desert a lot of it and you're like oh i'm going to go and tell you where the hulk is desert (laughs) like okay (laughs) thanks Uh, thanks a whole lot like he's always in the desert dude you told us nothing but then you then get Captain America who's like, well, I'm going to go where the lava men were because the Hulk may be around there. But he has absolutely no reason to think that. Yeah. So it turns out that was actually the Mole Man who sent this giant robot to the Avengers in order to bring them out to the desert southwest because reasons. Yes. <laughs> uh, so they take some other plane. It's the Avengers' newest model jet stream cruiser and take that out west. And yes, they go to the same location where they had fought the Lava Men earlier. And they have a little aside showing that the Hulk is fighting the leader inside a hideout that leader has inside a hollowed out Mesa, but we are never going to have these two stories cross paths. It's just like, ironically, this is what's going on over here. They're looking for the Hulk. And yet he's right over here and they never see him. This is all happening in an issue of Hulk that has not been published yet. So this whole issue of Avengers is a preview of next month's issue of Tales to Astonish. And it's quite bizarre. We just keep getting these little flash forward glimpses of what's going to happen next month in Tales to Astonish. Yeah. So Mole Man uses one of his standard little, you know, elevators down into the earth things. It is once again implied that the Mole Man has every single square inch of the earth lined with elevators that he can open up trapdoors underneath at any time. And he's like, yeah, I'm the woman. It doesn't matter where they doesn't matter where you are standing on the surface of the earth. I can lower an elevator under you at any time. Well, but I, I counter that he had to lure them out to the desert Southwest for some reason. True. Why is that? Maybe this is where he has these. But things. he did not lure them here specifically. He lured them not to the desert Southwest. He just used the word desert. That was the entirety of the luring he did. It would be right. it would be well, I mean, sheer luck Alexa. if they managed to land. I mean, clearly the only way he could have a trapdoor underneath him is if he has one everywhere. Well, technically, the largest desert on the Earth is Antarctica. So I think that if they were to logically choose the most likely desert for him to be in, that's where they would go. 
Uh, do you have anyone locally who can give you a swirly, or do you need to wait until I get out there next time? <laughs> okay, yeah, don't don't bully kids, right? So he he brings them down into their world, uh, but it's not like an elevator. It looks like it's a big shaft that they're falling down, and they've you know of course don't have anyone who flies anymore in their group, so uh, they've got to use other means to stop themselves from hurling down this thing, and then they see this giant monster coming at them that looks kind of like a minotaur and i i believe they specify that this is one of the various crazy underground creatures that lives in mole man's world so the avengers fight it with various things hawkeye is using concussion arrows exploding arrows of various sorts oh um another example of airs and heck being a terrible combination is on page 13 panel four (laughs) Uh, that's awful. Yeah. Yeah. Once again, you know, this seems like the kind of thing that, you know, really ambitious, you know, high school kids will show to me in a port for a portfolio critique at a comic show, you know, yeah. just be like, all right, so let's, let's go back to all the basics you need to get. <laughs> to. And it's like, oh, but this is Don Heck and Dick Ayers. What are you doing people? Anyway, let's see. Hawkeye, Captain America, and, Scarlet Witch gets separated from uh, Quicksilver by a rockfall. He's attacked by moloids and brought before the Mole Man. At this point, the, the rest of the Avengers are still trying to defeat the Minotaur. Uh, they finally do so, then are able to get to Quicksilver and rescue him from some sort of thing the Mole Man has him in here. What is this contraption? You shall now be uh, subjected to ultrasonic vibro waves within minutes your mighty muscles will have been reduced to mashed potatoes which once again seems like an odd phrasing for mole man but before he can be turned into a mass of mashed potatoes uh the rest of the avengers make their way in there they rescue pietro the reunion of pietro and wanda looks um disturbingly romantic <laughs> she's like hanging on his neck with a big smile yes one of many things that when the ultimate comics turned to edgelordy they decided oh let's actually have them get together like oh i have some actual incest going on to pay off the subtext of the old creepy marvel comics and i'm like don't don't be such an edgelord dude don't feel like you <laughs> don't go there yes but then in the end the Mole Man basically realizes that uh, his plan has been foiled. He is not going to be able to take care of the Avengers. So he then seals them in a little glass capsule and sends them back up on another little elevator thing up to the surface. Almost like they've been put in a one of those little canisters in a pneumatic tube you get at the drive through at the bank. Well, they say (laughs) he chose sending us to the surface rather than fighting us. Then we've won. We've had our baptism of battle. And it's like, but what if the Hulk, we didn't find him. Our search for the Hulk was a success for we did find the most important thing. We found our true strength together. And then they're back home and Captain America is thinking they're pleasant and friendly now, but how will they stand up to our first setback? Only time can tell. It's like, no, you can tell right now because this was a setback. You guys did not win at all. You guys did not defeat the Mole Man. You did not find the Hulk. You did not, like, you just, the bad guy just ejected you from his lair. That is not a win. This is this whole issue was a massive failure, and you are not willing to admit that. Yes, let me see if I had any other visual notes. Hawkeye being basically a cad, not a really a cad or a wolf, but uh, to Scarlet Witch. At one point, she says, "You destroyed those devices before I had a chance to show what I could do." Hawkeye. Hawkeye says, "You don't have to do anything gorgeous. Just stand there and let us look at you." It's like, uh, Clint. There's also another point in this issue where Stan Lee just completely gets in his, steps on his own feet here. At one point, there's a caption where it says, one of the most dangerous, unpredictable arch villains of all time watches the entire scene with grim satisfaction. And then immediately after that, his word balloon is blasted. I was sure the robot could destroy them. And I'm like, is that what grim satisfaction (laughs) is? Because... That does not seem like grim satisfaction. That seems like the other thing. (laughs) Anyway, yeah, so, you know, this is, uh, as we've talked about, we're going to be having some important issues that aren't necessarily good issues. And this is, you know, this is the first time we've seen, as they 
start calling them Caps Cookie Quartet working together. And I find some of the interpersonal dynamics between them actually kind of interesting. They're handling it nicely in that, you know, they do have some rivalry, but then they are earning some respect for each other. But that doesn't mean they've completely gotten rid of their rivalry. And uh, I I think it makes for some nice kind of um, character building here uh, and team building. It's bizarre how they keep on intercutting with this Hulk story for no reason that doesn't actually ever intersect. We didn't say it, but they totally spoiled the end of next month's Hulk story because they end with like the army had come in and found Bruce Banner seemingly dead. So it's like we actually we don't just flash forward to the battle that's going to happen that's that issue we flash forward to the ending of it and it's like what what's going on but we, yeah. we, it's not till next month we'll actually get to read it and then we've got the bad heck airs art honestly i think that this era of the avengers is really a big part of what cemented hex not entirely deserved reputation as a terrible comics artist you know as i've said you know over the past you know two years of this podcast uh i actually am a surprisingly strong defender of his work in let's say 62 63 maybe 64 and then once we get to 65 you aren't going to be hearing that much from me anymore no uh any other thoughts you have it was a very bizarre decision to kick out iron man so by the way thor never quit the <laughs> the adventures he is he still has no idea he's been kicked out of the group or that the group has moved on without him they're not going like i guess thor can show back up in a moment he was he was not there for the whole breakup of the group but kicking giant and the wasp and iron man out bringing in these three seems like a decision that still has not quite justified itself and seems like a bizarre decision <laughs> certainly the group even though they they are quite proud of what they've accomplished in this issue, they should not be. They have not coated themselves in glory. We will see if they are capable of achieving anything. But uh, I am still not necessarily sold or on board with this being the new group of the Avengers. And we will see if it works going forward. Of course, it will eventually work once we have the Roy Thomas John Buscema era. But that is still 25 agonizing issues away. And we have a lot to get through to get there. Well, I, for one, welcome our new kooky overlords. <laughs> exactly. I, for one, welcome <laughs> our new ant rulers. Yes. Yes, exactly. Okay, so uh, I guess we should go ahead and uh, wrap this up here. Thank you once again, everybody, for giving us your time and your attention. We're very happy to have you here. Feel free to uh, rate and review us. And um, meanwhile, stay safe out there. Yes, indeed. Thanks to everybody for coming out. We will see you soon when we return to discuss the books of July 1965. Goodbye. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Your reviews and ratings are a great help and always appreciated. We love hearing from you. Go to MarvelRereadClub.com to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time.